right out of the gate, as we, as we look back at the, the six chapters, uh, well, we've been through five, we're going to hit six this morning. Um, we've established right out of the gate that narrative is not normative. And that's really important when we're looking at the Old Testament in particular. Just because the Bible records a thing does not necessarily mean that that thing is meant to be taken as normal or good or right or any of those things. In fact, the Bible records a great many things that are not good and they're not right. They should not be considered normal for us. Another way of saying that is um, the Bible is descriptive. Uh, it's, it's not always prescriptive. Just because it's describing something that happened doesn't mean that it's the way it should always be for us as followers of God. And, and then we, we uh, you know, regarding this whole theme of prophets, priests, and kings, we said in week one, uh, these three offices are established by God over his covenant people. And kings could be prophets. And priests could be prophets, but kings could not be priests. Think about the consolidation of uh, governmental rule and ecclesiastical rule together. That's, that's too much power. Even God's about the division and distribution of power. He's like, I don't want to consolidate that. Just gonna, that's going to blow somebody's ego out of proportion, and they're going to become you know, the thing that we all dread. So, um, so there are exceptions to this rule, though. Um, there's Melchizedek. There's um, Jesus, and there's the church, prophet, priest, and king. So, so there is this exception here in the Bible. And, um, and, and so all of that is foreshadowing here in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus, who is the ultimate king of kings. He's the prophet of prophets. He's the high priest, right? So we, we begin for Samuel. We, we witnessed Hannah and her deep distress being barren and pouring out her soul to the Lord in chapter one. God granted her request and she had a son. She named him Samuel. And in Hannah, we see a clear example that without faith, scripture says it's impossible to please God. Because it's only when we believe in him and put our hope in one that we cannot see that he's, that he's pleased with us. You can't please him in your efforts, in your flesh. In chapter 2, we see Hannah follow through on her promise that, she made to, that Samuel was going to be a priest before the Lord. And not only did she follow through on her promise, but she worshipped the Lord God and she exalted in the Lord and in his goodness and in his faithfulness. And, we, and then we witness the dysfunction of the house of Eli and his two sons defiling the Lord's sacrifices and, and even extorting God's people for their own personal gain as priests. The Bible said in that, in that section, it says that they were worthless men. And even though Eli knew that that was happening, he didn't do anything about it, which made him complicit. Because unchecked sin, we saw, always becomes more and more aggressive over time. It's got to be confronted. It's got to be dealt with or it gets worse. We saw the contrast between Samuel, who was growing in the Lord, and Eli, who was declining in the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel um, as a young boy, though in that chapter there was some confusion about who was speaking. And, and Samuel keeps getting up and going to Eli, who's dead asleep, and be like, hey, Eli, what did, you, what did you want? He's like, go back to bed, kid, you know? So there's this confusion. And... Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we work through chapter three. God, God has spoken. Really what we came away with was God has spoken, not just to Samuel, but to us. 
He's given us uh, the creation, which speaks to us, Psalm 19. He's given us a conscience, the part of us that knows right and wrong, and he's given us his, his perfect word, the Bible, that he has spoken. Chapter 4 saw the Philistines, the ancient enemies of Israel, go to battle with God's people. And while we'd expect the Philistines to be superstitious, what we find is that the Israelites were just as superstitious. And God teaches them a lesson. He lets the Ark of the Covenant be captured by their ancient enemies. And he's reminding his people, I don't live in a box. The, the objects that aid in our worship are not to be worshipped themselves. And so there's this theme of Ichabod in that chapter because the glory had departed from Israel. And then what we did was we took some time to draw some stark parallels to our current cultural situation here in the American church. That there's a lot of ways in which the glory has departed. So the ark found, uh, found itself on tour, more or less, through the cities of the Philistines as the Lord brought affliction upon them. And Marcus knocked it out of the park last week with his sermon, and he, and he, he just reminded us that uh, God's not limited by geography. Uh, God reigns in every situation. God is present in every affliction, and God's purposes prevail in every crisis. That's good preaching right there. We got several phrases that just they sound alike, but they mean different things. I'm like, that's good. That's good. I got I to gotta write that down. That's, I need, Mark is going to have to coach me a little bit. Um, so this morning, we're going to turn to chapter six, and we're going to see how this crisis gets resolved. So let's look at the text here, 1 Samuel 6, 1, and we're going to read all the way uh, down to chapter seven, verse two. It says, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? These, these are statements of panic and fear, which are the natural and necessary consequence of superstition, especially when all of the chants and charms and incantations have failed. It's seven months now. I, I assure you, though it's not in the text, they tried different stuff. They, they, they worked through their incantations. They worked through their superstitions and voodoo, and none of it was working. And now they're at a place where they're like, what, what are we going to do with the Ark of the Lord? And, and the Philistines are naturally reluctant to, to part with their new trophy, the Ark, because in their minds, they just won this great victory over the Israelites and their God. But the victory has turned to horror and plague because God's punishing them. And, and in all fairness, I don't know if you're one of these people. I'm one of these people. It takes some people a little longer to realize when they're beaten. Yeah. And this is, this is the case, right? And this is equally true for some people who think that they can stand up against the one true and living God. They're beaten, but it takes people a little bit longer. Verse 3 says, they said, if, if you send the ark of God, send, send away the ark of God of Israel, don't send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So it's obvious the Philistines are still trying to manipulate Yahweh as if he were Dagon or some other god. We'll send him a gift. It'll all be good, right? And in all fairness to the Philistines, that's all they knew, manipulating their false gods, right? But this, this worldly thinking seeps into the church all the time. I see it, I see it all over the place. Here's, here's how the math works, okay? Uh, if, if I just do X, 
then God is obligated to do Y for me, right? That's such a subtle, it creeps in so subtly into our thinking. And, and so th this is just more of the same superstition and false religion. And, and, and the Lord God is not beholden to any person. He cannot be bargained with. He cannot be manipulated in any way, shape, or form. We come to him in abject poverty spiritually and ask based on his character and his grace, not based on, well, I'll, 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 I'll get you back, Lord. I'll, I'll hit you back next week when I got my paycheck. It, it's, it's not it. It's his grace, his unmerited, unearned favor. So despite this assault on his people and his reputation, he's actually being really gracious to the Philistines when you think about it, because he could have just wiped them out. He could have just blown them up, wiped them off the map. And you go, I mean, you look at the text and somebody, you know, you casually read the text and you go, how could that be the case? There's tumors, there's rats, there's plague. How is that gracious? Well, all of those are opportunities for the Philistines to forsake their false gods and turn to Yahweh and live. I mean, think about that. He's given them seven months of just shutting down their religious system and, and showing them that there's no power in it and their opportunity to repent and turn to him and live. That They're not doing that. Uh, verse 3 indicates the Philistines are only interested in the alleviation of their current situation, not in turning to God with all their hearts. And how many of us can relate to that? <laughs> Lord, if you just fix the mess that I made, right? I don't, no, I'm not really interested in, in uh, going to church all the time, I, but I just, could you fix the mess, right? And that's, that's kind of where they're at. So um, we know people that fit that description. They're not really into Jesus. They just want to know if he can fix their circumstance so they can get back to their managed life, right? And, and I've been there. I've been there. Verse 4, <clears throat> we'll read on. Verse 4, and they said, what is the guilt offering that, sh that we should return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on, our, on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now, I think this is really funny. As we know that the plague involved tumors, and some translators, and I love this, actually use the term hemorrhoids. So think about what's happening for seven months, a bad case of hemorrhoids. And there's not enough preparation H in the world to help the Philistines. And if that sounds too far-fetched for you, just remember that I am always looking for an excuse to use body humor in a sermon and that God has an incredible sense of humor. And it's, in fact, his sense of humor is perfect. And so this is perfectly funny. Um, so the, then there's this mention of mice. Uh, some translations you might have might say rats or, um, or, or just, I don't know, you know, m mice or rats or rodents. We're not told in 1 Samuel 5 that the plague involved rats or mice whether which one, but some commentators think the tumors were the result of bubonic plague, which would be carried by rats and other rodents. So it, rats, mice, hemorrhoids. Um, so nevertheless, th we, we have the Philistine goldsmiths cranking out golden rats and golden hemorrhoids. Lovely. I mean, can you think of the staff meeting? Like, wouldn't you just want to be the fly on the wall? Like, where did this idea come from? To, how do we appease the God of Israel? I know, gold hemorrhoids. Um, 
That's crazy to me. Um, the meeting of the heads of the Philistines as they discuss these things. Um, God wants golden hemorrhoids as appeasement. I, who, who thought that was a good idea? But the artisans crank out some gold tumors and gold rodents in an attempt at appeasement. And, and then this phrase in the text says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land, which is to say, we don't know. We don't know if he will. Perhaps he will. And this is actually good in one sense when you read this because it's a tacit acknowledgement that they don't understand God and that they know, they know at least that they can't control him. So maybe this will work. We don't know. He's unpredictable. It's just like he's, he's like a real God, not like Dagon. And this specific guilt offering also shows that they recognize that it's the Lord who brought the plague on them. They're really actually acknowledging three things. The, the, plague, the plagues are not an accident. The Lord, the God of Israel has caused them. And, and three, we apologize to the Lord God and ask him to turn away his anger. That's a good start. That's a good start. Acknowledging God's judgment, or, or in some cases his coming judgment, is one of the ways we give glory to God. It's one of the ways that people can give glory to God. But too often we fall back into superstition like the Philistines and we ignore his judgment or we just write it off as bad luck or bad karma. Oh, I hate that word, bad karma. So if, if you have to hand it to, you got to hand it to the Philistines for having enough sense to know they've deeply offended the God of the Israelites and they need to repent. And so they asked this rhetorical question here in the text in verse six, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? So, so what happens? Let's talk about hardened hearts for a minute here. What happens when a person hardens their heart? We think about that for a minute. You go, well, it's, it's messy. And, um, and, and so I'll give, you, I'll give you a list of some things that I think happens when a heart is hardened. And, and, and they don't always come in this order. And they don't always come as a package. They, they can come two or three at a time or one at a time. Or it, it's, just, it's different for every person. But just listen to, here, here are some, some things that contribute to the hardening of the heart. Uh, a refusal to acknowledge God at all. A lack of any sensitivity regarding sin. Failure to follow God's commands or, or to consider Jesus or, or to, to even try to hear the voice of the Spirit will lead you to a hardened heart. Arrogance and pride will, will result in a hardened heart. Being easily offended. Ooh. Being easily offended. Resentful. Carry, carry around that chip on your shoulder. Lacking the ability or the willingness to forgive others will lead you to a hard heart. Indifference to the word of God. Just don't care about the things of God. That, that will lead you to a hard heart. Unbelief, which is not the same as doubt. It's not the same as, a, as weakness of faith. Unbelief is a refusal to believe. That will lead you to a hard heart. All these are elements of hardening one's heart. And now here's the leader of the Philistines going, don't do that. Like take the lesson from Egypt, right? Don't do that. Because what happens to people who harden their hearts? Well, well, the Bible tells us God turns them over to their fleshly desires and appetites. This, this happens at an individual level with, with individual people. And it can also happen to a society or to a culture. 
And, and not that every person to the man in that society hardens their heart without exception, but that as a whole, that society has rejected God. And then God's punishment, his discipline, and then, and then if the discipline's not responded to, his wrath begins to come upon that people. And, and I find this fascinating that the Philistines cite the whole Exodus showdown in Egypt as a reason not to harden their hearts in this situation. They're like, we're trying to learn a lesson from what we've seen in history. Somebody's learning from others' mistakes. Way to go, Philistines. And then verse 7, we'll read a little more here. It says, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke those cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. It's a pretty big coincidence. I mean, just seven months of hemorrhoids and rats. Anyway, yeah, we will know that this happened to us by coincidence. L- listen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, hear, hear me. There's no such thing in God's economy. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Coincidence is defined as a remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without apparent causal connection. There's no cause that this would happen like this. It's a situation in which events happen at the same time in the same way. It's not planned or expected. So, the, so as the people of God who affirm that he is omniscient, that means he's all-knowing, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, coincidence is not an option. It's not an option. Now, it's worth stopping here for a moment to explore a related topic because I think Christians get confused on, on some of these terms in our culture, like coincidence. Um, one hiccup is the idea of, well, but God is sovereign, right? What about God's sovereignty in this? There are many people in the church today that erroneously equate um, God's sovereignty with the idea that God controls every minutia of everything that happens. So let me just unpack that. We, we, call, we call this belief divine meticulous determinism. And so let me, let me define those words because I'm happy to throw theological terms at you, but that, it's not going to help you, right? So d- divine meticulous determinism. Okay, divine, it involves God. Meticulous involves every minutia and detail. Determinism. The idea that God is completely controlling everything that happens at all moments in time. Right? In other words, you don't have the freedom to make a decision. You're only making the decision God is causing you to make. You're, you're, you're a puppet on a string. right? Divine meticulous determinism. So we look at texts like this one as proof that God causes all things whatsoever comes to pass. But, and we would concede that God does directly cause some things to come to pass. He sent the plague, right? He sent the plague. We concede that, but we also affirm the freedom of man's will in making decisions and experiencing consequences, right? So there's this wide chasm between these two concepts, though some groups use them interchangeably. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we simply mean that God can do whatever he wants to do. He's the king of all creation. And as Mel Brooks said, it's good to be the king, right? It's good to be the king. He can do what he wants. 
He can, he can do whatever he wants. When Christians make sovereignty about God's controlling of all things, they're conflating two different topics. The Psalms tell us really clearly, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He can do whatever he wants. Now, praise God, he, he, literally, he, he has his character on display and he's good. He's not capricious like Allah. He's not capricious like Dagon. He doesn't delight in tormenting people. He's good, right? So, so the Psalms tell us God's in heaven. He does all that he pleases. And then that same Psalm, if you read down to verse 16, says, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he's given over to the children of man. That means we make decisions down here. And he lets those decisions stand. And we have to live with the consequences of our decisions, right? So real human beings make real decisions in real time and subsequently experience the consequences and repercussions of our decisions. We now return to our regular scheduled sermon. Um, but this passage makes me wonder, this, this whole formula about Dagon and, and sending the golden uh, rats and tumors, where did it come from? And, and then who, de who devised the plan with the cows? Because it's really actually kind of genius in a weird way. If you don't know much about cows, you're going to be totally intrigued by this. Um, in, in fact, let me read you 10 and 11 here. The men did so. They... they, they they enacted the plan. They took the two milk cows. They yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart with the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. I had to do, I had to do some digging on this because I'm not a student of animal husbandry, right? I, I'm, I've got a dog. That's it, right? I've never had cows. I've never had farm animals. I had to do some research. But um, the first thing that I learned in all of my reading this week about cows is that you never, ever, ever take milk cows and put a yoke on them. They don't like that. It's not something they're used to. They will start to buck and, and kick and they, they just don't like it. And, and, and don't, you can't get them to pull a cart. They're milk cows. They've only ever just grazed in a field and produced milk. And so um, they would be inexperienced in that labor. They typically would not want to pull anything at all. They would, they would resist their yokes and take into consideration here also that the Philistines had taken their calves from them. They've got new calves and they're nursing these calves. You would expect the maternal instinct to kick in and that they would go right back to their stalls where the calves were. You would certainly expect that they, you wouldn't expect that they'd just walk away from their homes uphill for 10 miles. So the Philistines had devised a test that was really going to reveal whether the God of the Israelites was really the cause of their calamity because he was going to have to do something unnatural and miraculous to bring the ark back to its proper place. So note here in the text that the Philistines are at least smart enough not to open the ark. Clearly they had seen Indiana Jones. But instead, they, they made a separate box for the, for the offering, put it next to the ark, which was a smart move. And then verse 12 tells us that the cows went straight up in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway, lowing as they went. They neither turned to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Again, not the result that uh, we would expect under nor normal circumstances. These cows had never been harnessed before. Their maternal instinct ought to have driven them back to their stalls where the calves were. And instead they went straight up to Beth Shemesh, neither turning to the right nor to the left. They were, they were going straight where they were supposed to go. And in the text says, and they were lowing as they went, which is how cows express 
frustration sometimes. They're indicating that they're not really happy about the situation, but nevertheless, they did the will of God. So this is a miracle. This is a, this is a full-blown miracle because two cows who'd never pulled a cart before, who were leaving and likely longing for their little calves, went up into the hill country about 10 miles with no human driver to lead them or prod them on. They never stopped. They never wandered off the road into some field to graze. It's actually kind of funny because the, the Israelites weren't glorifying God and the Philistines weren't glorifying God. So God used a couple of cows to show his glory and goodness. So like if my, if my people aren't going to glorify me, I'll find something else. I'll find something else. Verse 13 to 16. And the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there. And so they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So get this, they, here's the picture here. The people of God were reaping and rejoicing. They were bringing in the sheaves. We'll talk about that in a sec. They stopped only to worship the Lord. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be doing. We're going to pull a Jen Psaki and circle back to this in just a minute. So hold on. So, so, so the men of Beth Shemesh split up the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering. Beth Shemesh was a priestly city in the allotment we see in Joshua 21. It's one of the, the cities of the Levites. So there would have been plenty of priests on hand to handle the ark properly and reverently. reverently. And then 17 uh, says, these golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. Those were the big cities of their empire. And, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. So there were more than five golden mice in the box. Um, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This, this is, you know what this is? This is God's grace, folks. God is gracious. And the Philistines were horrible people who worshiped demons and did evil things. And their attempt at appeasing the God of Israel was mediocre at best. Nevertheless, in his goodness and grace, he lets this stand and he relents from continuing to punish them. He's not done chastening his own covenant people, but he's given the Philistines a break because he's good. He's a good God. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Whoa, he should be striking down the Philistines. They're the bad guys, right? Look what the text says, 19. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord Actually, dig, dig around a little bit. Some of them looked in the ark. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And, and so they sent the messengers and the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and said, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Come get this thing. We, we don't want it here. 
The Ark of the Covenant was only to be touched and handled by specific Levites from the family of Korath, and they were commanded not to touch the Ark itself in Numbers 4. You don't ever touch it. So the men of Bashemish sinned. Seventy of them paid with their lives. We see once more God dealing with the Israelites more strictly than he dealt with the Philistines. It seems unfair, but just stop and think about your family of origin. I don't get to spank other people's kids. It's not that I don't want to. They're not my kids. And so, so this, is, this is God saying, those aren't my kids. The Philistines are not the people of the covenant. The Israelites are. Seventy men of Beth Shemesh died for looking into the ark. God is disciplining, disciplining his kids. Isaiah 55 says it this way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You, you might not understand this. You might think this feels a little unfair. God says, that's okay. I'm dad. You're not dad. You'll understand someday. They had only just got the ark back. And now they're mishandling it and bringing down his anger. And as you read the Old Testament, you read through the, the, the Old Testament narrative, you'll see this yo-yo effect with Israel. We, we want God to come close to us. God, God, come close to us. Come near to us. Ah, ah, no, go away. Go away. Too much holiness. Too much holiness. Oh, God, we want you so near. We, we want you just to come and be near. No, 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 no. Too near, Lord. Too near. Too near. Too much holiness. It's, it's, all, it's always this back and forth and this back and forth. And, and, and knowing that the Lord is not is holy is not the same as wanting to be close to God. You can know that he's holy and still not want to be close to him. A person can have a conceptual understanding of God and not want God. Typically, people want what God can give them, but they don't actually want God himself. And when people encounter the holiness of God, they're not always drawn to it. When, when Peter first saw the holy power of Jesus, he said, depart from me. And I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When, when the disciples witnessed Jesus shining brilliantly at the transfiguration, they were greatly afraid and rightfully so. When we stand before our holy God, we will experience exhilaration and awe and also a healthy fear. Even as redeemed people, they'd be like, wow, to tremble. I mean, have you ever, how many of you guys have been over to Montana? You've been somewhere where you, you've driven through or close to proximity to buffalo, like a bison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one thing to watch that on the TV and go, that's a big animal. It's another thing to be parked next to one. Like it's bigger than our minivan. That thing decided to just lean over and crush us all to death, you know? It's like there's a difference between the concept and the reality. You get to the reality and you go, whoa. And this was happening here with the people of God. And so the, the section actually wraps up here in, in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab up on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge over the ark of the Lord. And from that day, the, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And honestly, I don't know why they picked that village. Uh, maybe they had good relations with those folks and thought they'd take good care of the ark. 
maybe they have bad relations. They thought <laughs> they'll have tumors in mice. I don't know. Uh, we, we don't know. Whatever the reason, the men of Kiriath-Jerim gave the ark to them, and it stayed there for many years. In fact, all the way up until the reign of King David, when he, bring, he would bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem at some point. So I, I really just want to draw one application point this morning. <clears throat> when it comes to God's holiness, there are really just two groups of people. There are those who distance themselves and there are those who draw near. That's it. There, there are people who see the holiness of God and they want to draw near to the holiness of God, even through maybe a little bit of fear and apprehension, even through a little bit of nervousness, but their, their heart's desire is to be closer to God, despite how terrifying this looks how hard this circumstance is. I still want to draw near. And then there's another group of people who say, no, I, I don't want to be near. I don't want to draw near. And the question you've got to wrestle with this morning is, which one are you? Which one are you? See, the Philistines were superstitious, but so were the Israelites. The Philistines sought to honor the Lord when the people of God were taking him for granted. Praise God for inconsistent pagans. The Levites at Beth Shemesh prepared, they appeared to be a breath of fresh air, and then 70 of them violated God's law by looking into the ark and died. You just don't know what to expect with God's people. So we, we live in a land where, where, where the people are super superstitious, like the Philistines of old. Superstition and the word of God don't blend. They don't mix. Here's, here's the things I hear in our culture. And some of these are, are fairly benign, but they've seeped into the church. I, I, hear, I hear beginner's luck all the time. It's beginner's luck. Or uh, bad things come in threes. Do they? I, I, I can count like seven or eight things. I, I, I don't know. Uh, knock on wood. What did that do? <laughs> Friday the 13th. <laughs> it's not just a bad movie series. Cross your fingers. Cross your fingers. Here's my favorite one. We baptize some of these. Name it and claim it. Now, I got to tell a story on my mom, who's watching probably right now on the live stream. When, she was, when, when I was little, um, and she, she was a new believer, she got caught up in Kenneth Copeland, and praise God, she's not anymore. But we would go, any, anytime we'd go anywhere to a store, as we were getting close to that store, she would reach over and say, all right, we're going to touch and agree. And, and we're going to get that. God's going to give us that front parking space near the door. We're just, going to, we're just going to name it and claim it right now. Every time. And I just remember it like six and seven years old going, what? What is that? That's weird, you know? But that was the thing we did. This is one of those things. We baptize our superstitions, you know? And she's, she, that's, that's long gone from her life. But I'm, mom... I love you. Um, but our list of superstitions goes on and on and on. And we baptize some of them and we, we Christianize some of them, right? We live in a superstitious land among a people who are filled with fear, especially at this hour. Panic and fear are the natural and necessary consequences of superstition when all the chants and charms and incantations have failed. And you see the, 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 the bankruptcy of your worldview. Fear then floods that person. 
The greatest fear people ultimately have is God's holiness because it impacts every part of our lives. It touches everything. It fundamentally changes everything. And just like the Philistines, many people today are only interested in the alleviation of their circumstances, not in turning to God with all their hearts. And those who are afraid of God's holiness just push him away. This this disposition looks at life and can't fathom God's place in life as my head, my leader, my Lord, and my king. See, those words carry the death of fun and the loss of autonomy for some people. These people fear the Lord and his holiness in the wrong way. There's no worry or concern regarding accountability or or the idea of standing before God in judgment and having to give an account of your life. What they fear is his interference with their lives, his interference with their preferences, his reordering their world, and his dealing with their vices and their sins. And and let me just say to you, they're right. Those people are right because God does want to be intimately involved in all of those areas and to reform them and change them. But that fear, that's a fear that leads people away from God. And then there are those who fear the Lord in the right way. And a healthy fear has to do with judgment as we head into eternity, knowing that we've got to stop in front of the judge and give an accounting of our lives. And this is what's described in Proverbs 9, verse 10, as the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. That fear leads people not away from God, but nearer to God. This is the fear that the people of Beth Shemesh uh, had in, in their, their fields that were reaping and rejoicing at the, at, the, at the idea of seeing the ark of God come back. God, God the ark's coming back. We're, yeah, we know we can't touch it, but we're excited about it. We're excited about it. They were reaping and rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And when they saw the cart carrying the ark, they stopped their happy labor to worship the Lord. Folks, that's what we should be doing as the church. That's a great picture for us. I don't know if you know uh, sheaves, I I said that word a couple of times, are bundles of grain that have been gleaned or cut down in the field and then then tied up and bundled together. They're easier to carry um, instead of just all the individual stalks, right? And there's this old hymn, and it's great. Lots of hymns today. I love that. Um, this old hymn dates back to 1874, written by a man named Knowles Shaw called Bringing in the Sheaves. And some, some of you guys know that, that old hymn. Um, I love it because the Bible is filled with this imagery of harvesting and harvest fields and laboring to gather the harvest into the storehouse. It's analogous to the preaching and the spreading of the gospel. You go back to the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13 this week, you'll see this analogy used again and again and again of sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping. And and, and the theme is all over the Bible. But let me just read for you the three short verses of this song, Bringing in the Sheaves. And and I don't don't know that it's old enough that I don't know the the melody. You're welcome. Uh, So I won't sing it for you. Uh, Sowing in the morning. Sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze, by and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Here's the third verse, going forth with weeping, so brokenness for the lost. Sowing for the master. 
Though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. But when our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome, and we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Amen. Amen. That's the picture I want to leave you with this morning. All this other stuff about the ark and the Philistines. And, uh, this section of 1 Samuel ends with God's people happily laboring in the fields, bringing in the harvest. That's the picture. And it's the only time they stopped their happy labor was when they stopped to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. What if? I mean, just think about it. What if the church was busy in the harvest? Like, like I don't know, like Jesus told us. What if we got busy about the harvest? What if our chief pursuit in these days of darkness was the communication of the gospel message, telling someone about Jesus and what he's done for them? And what if the only time we stopped doing that was when we were gathered together to worship and rejoice and recharge as his kids? What a, what a picture of what God has called us to. And I'll, I'll just ask the worship team to come join me here as we wrap up. Those who are afraid of God's holiness push him away. Those who show disrespect for God's holiness provoke his anger. But those who have reference for God's holiness receive him with glad hearts. So what is your attitude towards God this morning, church? Don't let your heart, of the fear of his holiness push you away. God wants you to come to him with awe and reverence and respect. So submit yourself to him as Lord and acknowledge his holiness. Maybe, maybe this morning, right where you are, you would, you would stay in your seat or you'd stand, but instead of singing as a response, you just need to quietly confess before the Lord and repent of something. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart just just longs to commune with him in prayer. Do that. Or maybe you just want to sing at the top of your lungs and just rejoice in his goodness. You can do that too. And don't let fear keep you from the Lord. Receive him with gladness. And I'll just wrap up with Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Listen to this as we go into a time of worship. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We are the flock under his care. Amen. You know, the Philistines were superstitious, but so were the Israelites. And we live in a land where the people are superstitious, but superstition and the word of God cannot coexist. The remedy is a healthy fear of God. There is a fear that leads people away from God and a fear that leads people nearer to God. Which one are you experiencing? Church, we desperately need to be busy in the harvest. What if our chief pursuit in these days was the communication of the gospel message, telling somebody about Jesus and what he's done for them? What would happen? What might God accomplish through us? Let's find out as we walk by faith and obedience. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.